I miss you. Your scripture reading for today is Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So today, uh, we're doing something a little different. We've never done this before. Uh, Throughout this series that we've been in over the season of Lent, we have been asking the community to submit questions that emerged from the conversations that we were having, questions about our images of God, questions about our experiences with God, questions about how we read Scripture in light of who God is. And we've been taking those questions all throughout this like last two months, and then wanted to take a whole Sunday to answer those questions, to address those questions as a community. It's not a thing that we've ever done before, so we'll experimenting right now with how that works. Um, and there's two reasons that I wanted to do this. One, I think like the questions that are emerging in the community are going to be different than the questions that sometimes I'm asking. And sometimes they're the same, and sometimes they're different. And so wanted a chance to surface questions that were in the community. And then two... I think sometimes the way that we engage images of God, our faith, and the traditions that we come from feels like we are walking on eggshells. Like we can't press too hard. We can't wrestle too much. We can't have too many doubts. We can't challenge the images that we hold too much because they are like sacred. They are eggshells that we like. If we touch them too much, they will break. And there's this image in the beginning of the Bible where Jacob who is like one of the ancestors of the nation of Israel. He's like kind of been running from God most of his life. And he has this vision, and in this vision he has this like experience where he's wrestling some kind of divine figure, an angel, maybe it's like a representation of God. It doesn't give us a lot of clear answers. And after he's done wrestling, God renames Jacob Israel. And Israel means one who contends with God, one who wrestles with God. And there's something about that image that I think is so beautiful and compelling for the kind of faith that we are invited to have. We are invited to have a faith that actively wrestles with our images of God. We're invited to have a faith that actively contends with God, that challenges how we understand God, that wrestles with our picture of God, that does not allow doubts or traditions or Um, sacred cows to stop us from engaging in the deep things of our faith and the true questions that we have. And so for those reasons, we wanted to take some time to answer those questions, to talk about those questions, or even to say we don't know to some of those questions. And to help me do that, I've invited my friend Max. Um, I have known Max since uh, you were in middle school, we learned recently. Unfortunately. Uh, Unfortunately. Um, I think fortunately, because at the time you had hair up like here and wore only tie-dye t-shirts. Correct. Uh, which was very cool. <laughs> Max is a house church leader at Missio. Um, and, I, and that's one important part of this is Max is a house church leader. And this is one of those spaces where we have these kinds of conversations really easily as in house church. But then also Max and I have been friends for so long and 
have been engaging in conversations like these for mm. most of our relationship. I think that's actually how we met, is that we were um, at a coffee shop and you were leading like a Bible study at mm-hmm. the coffee shop, and that's how we began to have our conversations. And so that's how it's been ever since. Yeah. It I, felt like, here we, here we go. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think that uh, I, since I came to Missio and uh, joined the house church then, I feel like I've done my best to hijack um, the like <laughs> precious minutes after the house church ended to bombard you with questions that I had. Um, so hopefully this is the same as that. Yeah, yeah, it's been really fun. <laughs> so yeah, that's what we're doing. Um, here we go. We'll try it out. <laughs> cool. Um, so um, I just want to start out by asking you what inspired the series, and if this is something. If the questions that we asked, that you asked in this series, are something that you've been wrestling with for a while now, or if it was just that you thought it was the right time for it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the reason I wanted to do the series, and Heather and I had like prayed through it for a while, the staff and, and us had like prayed through it and discerned through it for a while, is that I, I don't mean to be pedantic when I say this. I think there's nothing more important about us than the image of God that we hold. And that started to feel more and more true the more conversations that we had about mm. even things like the Bible or our ethics or like Christian politics. It felt like those conversations started in one domain and it always ended in what your image of God was. Because your image of God then led to how you interpreted mm. this like political moment or this justice moment or this moment in scripture. And it felt like we often had very beautiful images of God, um, images of God of like father, and that was really connected to something beautiful, or images of God connected to Jesus, and that was really beautiful, but at the same time, it felt like we were also in conversations running into images of God that were deeply painful, mm-hmm. or traumatic, or limited, or um, shamed, like, or judging, and so those two things were mixed together, and we wanted to spend, you know, seven weeks trying to unpack where do those images come from, and how do we get a sense of what a true image of God is, like, is there tools that we can compare the moments that are really painful for us to something that was bigger and that would lead to some kind of bigger, more spacious, gracious kind of faith. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that, like, a lot of times, you said, like, the image of God that we hold, like, influences so much of how we live our lives and how we think about things. And I think that really often, at least I feel like this, that I start the other, the other end. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I have an opinion about this. Oh I, oh, I feel this way about this thing. And then I'll work my way back and then be like, wait, does that match with my image of God? Like, does this actually make sense? Where if I started with the image of God, then I think things would be a little bit easier. Yeah, that's totally true. That is totally true. I, everything about our faith should flow from how we see and understand who God is. That's the thing that makes our faith unique is that at the center of it is this person named Jesus, and that everything else is we're just trying to kind of understand how do we do life in light of this person named Jesus, in light of this resurrection, mm-hmm. in light of this kind of like miraculous moment. And it's always challenging, I think, at least for me, I think the thing that was true about the series, it was so challenging to the stories that I often believe about God, even to this day. Like, if you come back to the person of Jesus, I am challenged deeply about the images that I've loaded onto the person of God that are often not um, true of Jesus. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so, so given that, what are, um, you've, you talked about this a little bit, um, or you talked about this a lot in a, in um, one of the sermons um, about your relationship to the image of Father. Mm -hmm. Um, but what is, like, uh, what is maybe the primary image that you have for God right now in your life? And what do you think that that is saying to you? Um, interesting. I think, so yeah, I, I think that for most of my life, God as Father was the dominant image. Um, and I, have, I told this story a few weeks ago, but I think that is 
a difficult image for me because I grew up as with, without a dad, and so then you're trying to figure out what does a dad look like, and so for me, um, that looked like a weird amalgamation of like TV characters. So it was like Mike Seaver from Growing Pains, Sirius Black from Harry Potter, and you just merge them together, and you have this like rugged psychiatrist, and that was my image of a father, and I was like, that's what God's like. Um, <laughs> a crazed prisoner escaped from Azkaban. Um, <laughs> so I think that was, that was like, for a long time, that was my image of God. My mom remarried, like a pretty amazing person, and that helped transform what my image of a father looked like because it was just like enfleshed. It was like, here's a real dad, and that looks like something real. Um, the image, though, that is, that is most confrontational to me today that is both inspiring and confrontational is the one that we've tried to focus on the most throughout the series is Jesus on the cross or as Revelation depicts Jesus as Jesus the lamb that was slain. Because mm. nothing challenges like my own um, like approach to life than that. Like here's this, this person who is king of the universe and rules the universe and overcomes all evil and does it through their own sacrificial death. Yeah. What does that mean about my own life? What does it mean about my ethics? What does it mean about my kind of faith? What does it mean about the way I engage politics around me? Like that feels it has huge implications yeah. for all of those things. Yeah, and in, in House Church a few weeks ago, we were, we were praying over the image of Jesus on the cross and we were like trying to dig into that image. And, uh, and I think the thing that came up was like, this is like beautiful and this is like sacrificial and powerless, right? And like, and like all these things. And it's also so powerful and, and um, so like glorious. And how do we, and that felt really interesting and kind of difficult to say, how, how is this image of powerlessness? How is yeah. this image of, of sacrifice? Which I can understand that. I can understand sacrifice. But then what is glorious about that? Mm-hmm. And how do you retain, how do you be both powerless and sacrificial and all powerful? Uh, and uh, and that, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right, that's like the deep paradox of our faith. Is mm-hmm. that at the center of it is this image of a cross that overcomes evil. Mm-hmm. And you're like, how does, how does the death overcome evil? Or how does the lamb that was slain become the king of the world and never stop being the lamb that was slain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's really good. It's, it's interesting. So I, I like this, um, this quote from uh, the American uh, author and monk, Thomas Merton, um, about ideas of God. He says, so much depends on our idea of God, yet no idea of him, however pure and perfect, is adequate to express him as he really is. Our idea of God tells us more about ourselves than it does about him. Uh, And I think that's so um, challenging because then I have to say, okay, do I think God is punishing Mm. and, and judgmental? Then what does that say about me? Do I think God is powerless and ineffective? Then what does that say about me? Um, and I definitely have felt that way about God at, at different times yeah. in my life. I, I tend to like waffle between either he is all-powerful and judgmental and punitive or he is like powerless and ineffective. Yeah. And how do I, but really those are reflections of, of me feeling powerless, me feeling ineffective and not in control or me feeling um, like angry and, and wanting that yeah. to take, to like channel that anger into something that is, you know, uh, outside of my control. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I just, I just think it's interesting to like, to, to try to, 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 um, break apart that image and say, what, where is this coming from? Like in my psyche, in my conscious, like, what is this actually saying? What am I saying about myself when I say that God is this way? Yeah. Yeah. That's a profound thought. Like we, we talked about this before in the last couple of services, but 
part of what makes Jesus really difficult is that he challenges the narratives and assumptions that we have about God. So, like, when Jesus is being crucified, people begin to yell at Jesus, no king but Caesar. Mm. And the, direct, the declaration is like, we don't, we reject this kind of king. We reject Jesus as king. And they put over his cross, like, Jesus, the king of Nazareth, which is, like, meant to be a mockery of the kind of king that he is. And so you have these two narratives that, like, are challenging each other. And that's still very difficult for us because we still don't love always the kind of king, the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing, the kind of ethics that Jesus is bringing with that kingdom, what it means for us yeah. to be citizens or people of Jesus' kingdom because of, yeah, I think what you said is really powerful. It's mostly about us. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, and it is so to, yeah, to, to hold this image of a God who is all of these different things um, and then to not just focus on the one thing that feels the most like me or the most unlike me at any given moment is hard, I think. And it's, like, difficult to say, yeah, this is a king who looks really different than what I think kings maybe should look like. Mm-hmm. And what does it say about me that I have an, an idea that is different than who Jesus is about what kings should be like? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, should we move on to uh, some of the questions? Yep. Um, that we got? Okay, so I will let you handle this first one because I have no great answers for this. Um, uh, and I think we got a couple questions about the Trinity. And so yep. the first one would be, how does the Trinity relate to and with another within itself? So how does the Trinity work? Uh, <laughs> uh, what, is it, what is that? And, uh, uh, and has, it always have, has it always been essentially Father and Son? Like what, what, is it, what is so important about those images? Yeah, what a great question. Yeah, so we, we did a, a sermon like, what, halfway through this series, talking about God as community. And then immediately afterwards, people were like, mm, please explain the Trinity. And I was like, mm, no. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so how does the Trinity relate within one of itself, and has it always been essentially father and son? That's such an important question because the way that God reveals God's self to us is God is father and God is son. And that's like kind of revolutionary, especially in the first century ancient Near East because Often, ancient Near East people believed that God, this is true of the God of the Bible, it's true of the gods of the cultures around them, they believed that God was like a lord or a king. There's this moment in Hosea where God is talking through the prophet Hosea, and it's like, I wish that you had seen me in like a relational way, but you keep describing me as master. And so to see God as father is like really revolutionary. And then sometimes what happens, I think, is that it's the primary lens that we hold on to, so we think it's essential. Um, but I do think that we need to, the notion of God as father and son is a relational metaphor. It is not an essential relationship. And what I mean by that is uh, Jesus is not the biological son of the father. We believe that Jesus coexists with the father, that Jesus is co-eternal with the father, that in all ways the son is equal to the father and has existed equally with the father. So there's like a dynamic there that is not son to father in that sense, right? Like, if they're equally existing for always together, you're not a traditional son. Instead, they relate to one another as a father, as a son, and as the spirit. And so then I think the way that we think about how the Godhead or how the community of God relates to one another isn't necessarily father and son. That's an important metaphor. What is essential is what the writer of 1 John tells us, that God is love. And that the primary way in which the Trinity relates to one another is in love or in relational love. And Father and Son is a beautiful way of expressing that, is a powerful way of expressing that. 
but it's not the only way of expressing that. The Greek word for this is perichoresis, which is often translated dance, uh, because they're try- again, you're trying to get at something that's very complicated when you describe the Godhead, but a dance is a great image to say, like, one moves and makes room for another, another one moves and makes room for another. And in love, we're always creating space in and of ourselves for one another. And so I think love becomes the way that God relates to, to God. Like, we love one another perfectly. And that's actually what makes God love, not just loving. That was another question that we received. It's like, what is the difference between God being love versus God being loving? And the fact is, God's very nature is love because God is a community of love. Uh, and it is out of that community that then God operates. And so if you go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, the very first moment that God is introduced to us is in Genesis chapter 1, and the text describes God in Hebrew as Elohim. That's the language used for God, which means a plurality of majesty. So there's like, even at the very beginning, there's this like communal understanding of who God is. And then if you go to Genesis 1, 26, God says to God, let us create humans in our image. So then there's a communal dynamic there, that out of the community of God, God is creating a community of people. And it's not just father and son relationship. Again, that's a metaphor that powerfully expresses the community of God. But essential, so the way that God relates to God's self, is in community, or is in love, or is in mutuality, or this dance of making room for the self within the self. So, um, yep, that's how we're, that's how we're <laughs> yeah. going to describe the Trinity today. Are there, so, so father-son is, is this, like, <laughs> obviously very helpful metaphor for mm-hmm. us to, like, to try to come to terms with God being a community and what that means, we can say, well, we know how father-son relationships work. Mm-hmm. And we can, we can, like, you know, that means something to me. Are there other relational metaphors that we can use to try to understand this, um, the way that the Godhead works, the way that, like, that, that God is communal? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think family is an easy one. And I think mm-hmm. Paul even uses that metaphor in Ephesians chapter 5 that uh, there's this, like, one model, the Trinity models for the family, what the family is supposed to look like. I think the other metaphor that is similar in Ephesians 5 is actually the church. Mm-hmm. Like that the church is a community of people trying to make room to empower one another in love, and that is meant to look like the community of God. And so these are all models or metaphors or images that point us back to who God is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's another one. But again, I mean, yeah. um, I don't want to overstretch a metaphor either because the metaphor, when we're talking about who God is, is always going to break down a bit. So, Sure, that makes sense. So then um, knowing then that God is, is this communal, plural of majesties, knowing that, that it's relational, what does that mean for us? If, if Jesus is like, okay, then God is in me and I am a God and then I will be in you, mm-hmm. what does that mean for us then in this, to, to know that um, how does that inform the way that we think about things? Oh, yeah, what a great question. Um, that's a great question. I think, so one of the things that we said when we talked about the community of God a few weeks ago is um, this statement that has stuck with me, which is that the whole of God is at work so that the mm-hmm. whole of you might know that you're wholly loved. And I think that's actually really powerful that at the center of the universe or our faith is a community of love that is at work trying to invite the whole world into a community of love. So that, I feel like, again, that image of God is really reorienting to what is God doing in the universe, what is God doing in one another, what is God doing in our world. So that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also the Trinity provides us a bit of a model for what does human relationship look like and what does the church look like. And so then as we look at this community of love that's always making space for one another, that is empowering one another, like there's this, there's this weird moment like the, the 
Father is the supreme king, but then he hands over kingdoms to Jesus, and then Jesus hands it back, and then he hands it back. And you have this, like, there's always exchange of gift and grace to one another and being like, oh, what if that is what human community looked like, that we were always making room for one another, yeah. empowering one another, trying to love in mutuality the way that God does. So, yeah. yeah. So then, okay. Um, so then, knowing this, how does the Godhead then work together in the world? Um, like, what is happening actively, maybe, is, is another way, or is, a, is an addition to that question. Uh, and then if God is triune, if God is a community, why do we focus on Jesus so much? Yeah, yeah um, that's a good question. We got asked that a lot. Like, what, like we have this conversation about God being communal, and yet we're like, the central image of God is Jesus. Why would we focus so much on Jesus? And uh, the easiest answer to that question is because the Bible said so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> take that, Sunday school. Um, <laughs> I, that is what the word, I mean, that is what the story of the Bible says, though. So the text that we read today was from Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 3, and the writer of Hebrews says that in all of these ways, God has spoken to us, and God's words are amazing, and, and, and God is saying amazing things, but in this final moment, God has spoken through his Son, and that's the ultimate word, because the Son is the exact representation of the Father. Or in John chapter 1, in the beginning of the gospel, uh, John the Apostle says, no one's ever seen God except the Son, who is the image of God, makes him known. So God has chosen to reveal themselves through the Son. And I think there's something really powerful and beautiful about that, that the way God chose to primarily reveal God's self to the world is through the incarnation or the becoming human of God. That's a, I mean, that's just like a wild concept that God chose, the, the primary way in God wished to be known was in this relatable human form. So I think that speaks maybe more to this nature of who God is, the generosity of God, the graciousness of God, the benevolence of God, that God would want to be known in that way through Jesus. And then it's also practical in that everything we know about God, I should say everything, but the primary things we know about God, we actually learn through Jesus. And so even if we're having a conversation about like the Trinity, we're kind of learning those things through the way Jesus shows up in the world. Like Jesus operates these ways, Jesus says these things about God. In John 14, Jesus tells us that the Spirit is working with the Son in order to bear witness to the Son. So like we also learn who God is through Jesus, and I think we learn how God operates through Jesus. So that's, I think yeah. that's why we focus on the Son and focus on the incarnation of Jesus, is that it's the primary revelation of God, and then very practically, it's how we learn who God is. And then how do they work? That's an interesting question. I think to try to make it sequential is probably like, you know, we're talking about like the, the divine mystery. But um, the, what we do learn in the scriptures is that like the Father sends the Son. Mm -hmm. The Son then in the cross and the resurrection and the ascension takes authority over the world, and then sends the Spirit, and the Spirit is at work extending the rule of the Son through the Father into the world. Um, and so you have these moments that are really beautiful where, like John 14, Jesus says, the Spirit will help you know me. So it's like there's these things you're not going to know, and the Spirit's going to continue that work. Or in um, 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, like, we read the Bible without the Spirit, and it doesn't always make sense. Like, it's just like very plainly, like, it's hard to understand this thing. It's hard to know who God is. And the Spirit is at work revealing more and removing the veil from our heart is the way that Paul says it there. Or in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul uses similar language that, that where the Spirit of there is freedom because the Spirit testifies to our deepest parts, the deepest parts of God. And so you have this moment where it's like there's this 
confirmation that Jesus is the image that we're living into, the image that we're pointing to, but without the work of the Spirit, it's like we, we can't understand, we can't get there, we can't live there. And so the Spirit's empowering and teaching and guiding and comforting us to help us know who the Son is. So in that way, then the whole community of God is actually working to point us back to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So then even then, why is Jesus the focus point? Well, because God is like working to do that with us, to know who the Son is and to become like the Son. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And so if, if yeah, I think if Jesus reveals some things to us on a personal level and then the Spirit might help us like unpack some of the mystery of God on like a more cosmic yep. level and like what, is, what does all of this mean? Yeah. How do I read these things? How do I discern things in a community? How do I do those things? That might be yeah. that, what the Spirit is doing. Yeah, somebody, somebody asked us in a, I, we put some of these questions up on Instagram and somebody was like uh, asking specifically questions about the Spirit. Like, what does Matthew believe about the Holy Spirit? Hmm. Which I think is a fair question uh, just because I think as a pastor, I've not always done a great job um, like, pressing into the reality of the Holy Spirit and, like, our Sunday gatherings. And I think, like, that's a place where I'm growing. This goes back to your question in the beginning, like, what is your image of God? This is another mm-hmm. thing I think I'm really growing into, is what is the work of the Spirit in the church? And what is the work of the Spirit in my life? And what is this work of the Spirit as I'm, like, have private personal devotion, and let alone as I'm doing communal things? And I think this series and some other experiences have just really challenged my conception of the Spirit, that we have sort of downplayed the Spirit's work in our, in our midst, in terms of all the things you just said, like helping us understand, like we don't understand who God is without the Spirit. We don't mm-hmm. know how to, you know, it's like there's so many things the Spirit is doing, and we also believe that the Spirit is at work around us, like in the world, and we're like called to join the Spirit's work all around us. So I think there's more there that we need to press into as a community, and me just personally. Yeah, I, well, I appreciate you being willing to, to say that about yourself. I think that's really cool. Um, I think let's, okay, we have some questions about um, who God is, maybe specifically to people in the Old Testament. I think we can move into that. Oh, sure. Okay, here's this question. So somebody asked, um, how do Old Testament people understand God? What was their image of God, and what does that say about them? And there were some other questions that were similar to that because there's moments in the Old Testament that sometimes seem so different than Jesus. Mm. Um, And so we got questions that were like, how do you hold those things together. And so, like, is there, so, how did people understand God in the Old Testament? This is true and sometimes hard for us, like, a little different than we did. Their understanding is developing, you could say. Um, There's, like, that moment that I referenced from Hosea, uh, it's Hosea 2.16. It says, you, someday you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my master. This is God speaking to the prophet, being like, you have a conception of me that is a bit small. And there's this moment in Psalm 50 that I really think is powerful and fascinating. The psalmist, God is speaking through the psalmist and says this, when you, Israel, did these things, he's talking about like doing wicked things in the world, and I, God, kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. So sometimes Israel has an interesting conception of God where they, they believe that God endorses things that God does not endorse. They believe that God justifies things that God does not justify. They believe that God is like certain things that God is not like. Um, There's this moment in Judges. If you read the book of Judges, you're like, oh yeah, they have a weird notion of who God is. But there's this moment in the book of Judges where like a person who is like supposed to be a religious Israelite offers to God um, like if I if I remember correctly the story, it's like if I win the war, uh, God, I will sacrifice to you the very first thing that I see come out of my house when I return. The very first thing that this man sees is his daughter. And I, I think you're reading that story and you're like, 
In what world does God operate that way? But the gods of the ancient Near East most certainly operated that way. The gods that surrounded Israel most certainly demanded child sacrifice. And so there's moments where you can see Israel absorbing conceptions of God and applying them to God. And then I think what you also see is the God of the Bible trying to press deeper into Israel's understanding and be like, you need to, there's a bigger way of seeing me. Like, I'm going to try to reveal something to you that challenges the gods of the world around you. So uh, I'll stop here, but Genesis 1 and 2, like, not, whatever they say about science, they also say something about theology. And they read very similar to certain kinds of, like, Babylonian narratives. But there's something very different about Genesis 1 and 2 versus Babylonian narratives, where in Babylonian myth, it's soaked in violence. Like, the world is the creation of violence. Humans are meant to be slaves. And if you're reading it as, like, an Israelite, you have this, like, narrative that's kind of similar, but then there's something very, very distinct about it, which is, oh, this is a God of abundance who creates out of the abundance of themselves. And humans are sort of creative, like Babylonians understand. It's like a bit divine, a bit earthy. But they're not created to be slaves. They're created to be co-rulers. And it's kind of like, I, always, I like to imagine it like if, if a Babylonian and an Israelite were having a cup of coffee, an Israelite could be like, yeah, it's sort of like that, but. Like, that's always the kind of way that God is like pressing into Israel's imagination to be like, yeah, it's sort of like that, but it's way better. And I'm going to slowly help you understand me more and more. And even, like, as you get through into the New Testament, Jesus has this moment in Mark chapter 10 where he, tells the, where he tells the people that are gathered around him that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because you were hardened of heart. Which I think, again, it speaks to, like, Israel had conceptions of God that were limited, and it got even written into the law, where it's like we allowed certain things, because you had hard hearts, and you had a hard understanding of me, and that's like, we just allowed, we accommodated that then, but then Jesus is like, but there's a better, there's a, there's a bigger understanding here that I want to press into with you, and I'm going to update your understanding and challenge some of your understandings about who God is and about how we work. Um, so, that's a long answer to that question, but I would say the whole Bible is a story about God making God's self known to the world. And so it starts with limited understanding and presses us until we get to Jesus. And then even in Revelation 21, presses us until the kingdom of God comes to earth and there's perfect knowledge of who God is. And so it's a story of the world coming to know God more and more after rejecting God. Yeah. So knowing all of that and having had the benefit of a compiled Bible mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, quite a bit of time to, to kind of digest over these things— what has changed or what's stayed the same um, about our images of God now versus the ones that they held in, in like, Old Testament times? Um, uh, interesting. I think um, there is still some really similar ones. Israel really believed that God primarily would work through um, political leaders. And so, like, there's that moment in 2 Samuel where Israel demands that God gives them a king, and God's like, if you take a king, you're rejecting me. And they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't care. Um, mm. But that's because they're like, we want a king to rule us, to, to judge us, and to do life with us, because that's what all the nations around us. And I think, honestly, like, we kind of think the same thing. Um, that sounds right. Like, we believe that God puts people, that, that I shouldn't say that, God does say that he puts people in the power, that he is sovereign over those things, but I think we often put so much emphasis on how God works through um, political leaders, kings, presidents, 
And I think that God is often trying to show us that God is showing up in places that are so different than that mm. um, throughout the narrative of Scripture. But we always want to put God somewhere else. We always want to put God into certain positions, into certain places, into prioritizing certain places. Yeah. What does that say for you personally as someone in a traditional position of leadership <laughs> as, as a pastor? Like, what does that mean then for us, for God to maybe often reveal things not through traditional positions of leadership? That question's a trap. Um, <laughs> I am a unique exception to the rule. And, uh, <laughs> um, well, I think, isn't that the beautiful thing about the, the, the way the Bible goes? Is that in, you go, like I think about 1 Peter 2, 9, and Peter declares the church, not me, the church, a priesthood of all believers. Like that's such a, like today we're really familiar with that language, but that is such a disruptive kind of statement that like everybody in here has access to the Spirit in the exact same way that I do. Like, I'm not uniquely qualified or uniquely gifted or uniquely empowered by the Spirit of God. Everybody in here has access. Everybody in here is uniquely called to participation in the thing that God is doing. And so um, I am, there's like a, almost like a democratization of the work of God when we realize that God wants to work in the most unexpected of places. Yeah. In, in, you know, Palestinian carpenters and uh, widows who show up at the grave and see the resurrection first. Like, you always look at the places that Jesus is showing up, and it's not the places that I think we so consistently want him to show up. It's, it's actually not with me, to be mm-hmm. honest. If you, like, read the biblical narrative, God shows up less with me and more often with people who are unexpected. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's, I mean, there's just not very many places in the world where, like, true equity uh, is found in that way, where, yeah. like, legitimately, this is revealed to everyone. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's kind of beautiful. Yeah. Um, we're, we're like kind of close mm-hmm. on our time. So I, I want to switch the table and ask you a question real fast. Great. Um, one of the reasons I asked Max to do this with me is I feel like you grew up, I mean, you grew up in a loving Christian home, like mm-hmm. have always had a pretty deep and like intimate faith. I, I don't want to speak for you, but it feels like that's been true, but it feels like it's also one that you've had to like work on. Yeah. And so like one of the questions I wanted to ask you, cause it feels like the place that we've been talking the most is how do we, especially as non-ministry professionals, I feel like it's hard for me to answer this question. How do we, mm. as just like regular folks who are in the church, deconstruct, reconstruct, and then curate a better, more intimate picture of God? Yeah, that, uh, it's so hard. Um, it is true that I have like been, called myself at least a Christian for a long time, and been relatively consistently going to a church for a long time. Um, but I think that um, realizing that I can like you said earlier, have doubts and have questions about the things that I have been taught and, um, and like the structures that taught them to me um, and what was influenced, um, what, like, what kind of influences were on the people and the, um, and the structures that have taught me these things and what does that mean for who I know God to be um, felt really um, liberating recently. Um, and so then the last couple years, I feel like I have tried to go through that process for the first time of, of deconstructing and reconstructing. Um, and I think it's necessary. I think the biggest thing that I found out is that um, you have to do that. And you probably have to do it over and over again. Um, and uh, like it, it, can, it sometimes is called the wisdom pattern, this idea of order, disorder, and reorder. And it's the way that Jesus works, right? It's the way that, um, it's the way that like the heavy 
the, the significant majority of stories ever told follow what's called the hero's journey, right? And it's this idea of we start in order, we go to disorder, and then we come back into reorder having learned something new. Right. And so I think you just have to do that. And what it teaches you, you know, I have no idea. Um, but if you constantly are asking, what, like, I, like we talked about earlier, like what is my image of God? And, and, and if I really believe that it's saying something about me more than anything else, what is it honestly saying about to me? What is it honestly saying to me? Hmm. And what can I learn from that? And I have to deconstruct it and go down into disorder a little bit to then come back up and reorder the things, reorder my faith, hmm. and, and have actually learned something. Um, <laughs> I, uh, there's a quote by uh, my guy Richard Rohr um, uh, where, he's, where he says, like, um, we have to honestly ask, I, I don't have it written down, so I'm, this is paraphrased, but he's like, you have to honestly ask what our fears are trying to teach us in that moment. You can't relinquish the fear. You can't get rid of it until you've learned what it has to teach you. Uh, and what is it trying to teach me about what is real? And so I feel like um, pressing into that idea of, I have a lot of fears about who God is and what that means for me and what heaven is and what hell is and what that means for me and what I'm supposed to be doing now. Like, that, a lot of fears. Mm -hmm. And so I have to, like, really press into those things to try to figure out what they actually mean for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that the way to do that is to follow that pattern. Huh. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, it's interesting, I, I, we use the word uh, reconstruction and deconstruction because that's the word that was used a lot. I know sometimes mm -hmm. that can have, like, negative connotations, but it made me think of, while you were talking, um, the reformers like Martin Luther uh, made a staple of the Reformation to always be reforming. And it feels like kind of the same notion, which is like we don't have perfect understanding. Totally. We, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 13, like we look through a mirror dimly lit and love transforms us and we continue to press into um, a transforming and renewing image, which feels like is what you're doing. And that makes me, one of the questions that we also got a lot, so we got a bunch of like theological questions, but then we got a, a handful of ones that are more like personal and more intimate around mm -hmm. like practices. And so in light of what you just said, um, I'll, well, I know we can like kind of wrap up in these questions here, yeah. but um, one of the questions we got a lot was about the practice of prayer and how the practice of prayer speaks to our images of God or doesn't speak to. And so here's the question. Um, you can, do we have to pray? Which is, this was asked more than once, which I think mm. is really interesting. Do we have to pray if we find in this discipline a lack of communion or even more, a confusion, a diminishment, or skewing of our image of God? How do we connect with God when prayer has been empty or even painful? And then can prayer be exchanged for another practice? So I'd like to ask you this of you because I feel like you've also been working on, you've been leading our house church in a lot of practices recently. Mm -hmm. That are maybe that are prayer adjacent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that it came out of these exact questions, which I think are completely universal questions. So I think anyone who feels like prayer is not satisfying, ineffective, painful, like I think that is like a deeply human experience. Um, and I think that like realizing that um, there is not one way to do something, and that includes something like prayer, um, is, is really helpful. And to give yourself a little bit of freedom to find what actually helps you communicate with God, um, and what actually helps you find um, what he's doing for you and in you. And I think, um, like, for me, that meant, like, finding um, types of, like, prayer and meditation and, and like, contemplative, contemplative practices that are, like, mostly looking inward. Mm -hmm. Like, I believe that God is in me already. So prayer going outward, like to 
this like what felt like a distant God no longer felt very effective for me. Mm. It felt pretty empty. And it doesn't for everyone. It feels really great for a lot of people, and, I, and that's amazing. So it doesn't have to look like one way or another. But it felt empty for me. And so then, like, looking inward, and how do I find... Um, I didn't write this down. But this is another Thomas Merton um, thing where he says, like, that if you find God, then you will find yourself. And if you find your true self, then you will find God. And so, like, how do I look at myself and like really become uh, attuned with who I am to find the image of God that was placed on me. Like how do I, how do I like get into contact with that and find God that way? And that felt a lot, that felt really helpful. Um, but I think just discovering that there are traditions out there that are helpful. Um, and I think traditions have, you know, for some rel- religious practices taken way too big of a role and for some taken too small of a role. But to like find out that there are these traditions and practices that have been going on for a really long time and really smart people have written a lot about it, Mm. I think is really, really helpful. Um, And to kind of skip forward a little bit to the last question of can prayer be exchanged for another practice um, or like, and and, um, to expand that question a little bit, um, can prayer be exchanged for different, deeper levels of intimacy, particular to the individual that instead foster and cultivate both their image of and relationship with God. Um, and so I think this is such like a universal, um, like totally human question and idea of this is not working, what can I do? What, can, what, what, is, what might be better? That like a 16th century Spanish Carmelite cloistered monk wrote a poem about it <laughs> and then wrote like books and books explaining his poem about it. And it has become like, you know, um, like very well known. Um, and so John of the Cross wrote this book, the dark, or wrote a poem, The Dark Night of the Soul, and then wrote two books ex- explaining what he meant by that poem. Um, but I wrote down uh, one stanza that I'd just like to read really quickly. Um, and it's, O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that is united the lover with his beloved, transforming the beloved in her lover. And uh, the piece that I really like about that that I think is relevant um, is, O night more lovely than the dawn, um, this poem is about, like, feeling that your relationship with God has, like, been disconnected. Mm-hmm. That you no longer find satisfaction, that you no longer find hope or connection in prayer or in whatever spiritual practices is that you have. And then in this moment, he finds that it is actually, like, in that moment of darkness and of, like, the word they use, like, of that wrestling, mm-hmm. that that is actually the moment that he, like, that is even lovelier than the dawn that comes after it. And so I think this idea of, like, not only is it okay to doubt and is it okay to wrestle and is it okay to try to find the ways to do things, mm-hmm. um, but it's actually that piece of it that might be, like, just as beautiful as when you find the practice or when you reconnect with God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's really beautiful. I think I, we'll, we'll start to wrap up here because uh, we're a little bit over on time, but there is lots of practices that the, the Bible or that Jesus gives to us to experience God. And so prayer is, I think, is an essential one, but prayer is, gets to be worked with other practices. The table is another practice that God gives us. Communal prayer, I think, is another practice that God gives us. Uh, being with children is another practice, that God, I think, that God gives us. It says, I'm going to be present to you in this. Being with the least of these is the moment where Jesus is like, I'm going to be with you when you're paying attention to the places that you think I'm least going to be in. Like, I'm going to be in those spots. And I think what happens when we do those practices, especially when we do those with others, is that we're opening spaces where God might be present to us. Uh, um, and so 
this maybe goes back to like our talk about the Spirit. Like the Spirit is actively working to help us encounter God, to transform our images of God. And so I think part of our work is to be attentive and attuned to what the Spirit is doing. There's a similar, you said a, a Richard Rohr quote. There's a Richard Rohr quote that I really like that's like, God is always with us, we're just not paying attention. Uh, and I think that's true. The Spirit's always with us. The Spirit's mm-hmm. always doing something. We're just, we struggle to pay attention. And then these practices are just meant, I think, to help us attune ourselves to what God is doing. So on that note, uh, we'll wrap up right now and try to practice this together. Somewhere around you or when you came in, there should be like a communion element. And we believe that the table is a moment to practice presence. It's a moment to encounter the presence of God, to experience what God is doing, to attune ourselves to the presence of God in the midst of us. And so, Missy, like, regardless of how the practice of prayer, regardless of what your images of God have been, would you bring those even to this moment of the table? Would you bring it to this moment and allow God to meet you here in this space? And as God meets you in this space at the table, God also will meet us and open up spaces of God's presence and worship and through the next moments of this service. So, Mr. let me pray for us and then invite you to take communion and then we continue to worship. Jesus, thank you that you are with us. God, thank you that you are in the midst of us, transforming us, speaking to us, that even as we struggle to understand who you are or to see you appropriately, or even as we struggle to like know how to engage with you because maybe those practices are painful, or even as we struggle to overcome our own difficult images, God, thank you that you are at work in the midst of us, unraveling difficult images, healing like painful images, and giving us a new revelation of yourself, your son on the cross. God, help us to see you today, to know you deeper, and to know ourselves as loved in you. In your name we pray. Amen.